Welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grosser. It gives me great pleasure to welcome regular guest of Viewpoints, Peter Gregory, Research Fellow with the Institute of Public Affairs. And there's a number of topics that have come, arisen out of events that have uh, occurred in 2020 that uh, we're going to chat with Peter about. But firstly, welcome again to Viewpoints, Peter Gregory. Henry, thanks so much for having me on the program. My pleasure. Now, it's been, we were talking off air, it's been a challenging year. Um, uh, how challenging has it been for you, uh, you know, in your role, your work and uh, and personally? Because we've all, we've all had it tough. Yeah, no, pretty challenging. Look, you don't want to sort of uh, go on about your own problems too much because you know there are people <laughs> out there that are suffering probably more than me. But I found working from home a real challenge. It was great for the first maybe five days just to not have to commute and all that, but... Uh, to be stuck in my living room for months on end and not be able to see people and talk to people uh, has been super frustrating. But um, as I said, I'm sure there's people out there that are facing much bigger challenges than me. And, How about uh, yourself? Uh, yeah, look, um, oh, look, the same thing is, is there's a lot of people in worse positions than me. It's been challenging in schools because um, we we had to just approach a form of teaching that we'd never had and we had to really jump into it straight away, remote learning on mass scale in in primary schools with kids as young as five and families, Peter, they um, they were never prepared for that sort of thing and many of them were suddenly unemployed or working from home uh, or whatever and uh, the remote learning experience was was a great learning experience but utterly stressful. You had the always had the threat of um, COVID-19. I know 150 schools were closed in the, in during Term 2 and 3. Um, but, uh, look, it's one of those things and, and I, always, I always admire the human condition in some respects and one of them is humans are adaptable and I know a lot of people struggled and, uh, and, and that's to be expected. But, you know, uh, you get given a hand in life and um, I see a lot of people with a lot worse ones than my own and uh, they can be quite inspiring to me at times. You you, you do your best, Pete, and uh, you push on, I think, and hopefully learn some things from it, get through it, and uh, and the sun hopefully will shine better tomorrow, metaphorically. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I definitely hope that 2021 is better for everyone out there. I sort of have been speaking to a few friends of mine who are teachers and they seem to say that the gap between the best and the worst students widened during the remote learning. Would that be accurate, do you reckon? Just it was harder for teachers to help kids that were already struggling. Is that accurate? Well, to some degree, um, the other condition that came into that, Peter, uh, would be the level of support that parents could give and the nature of the dynamics at the home. So while I would say there's a lot of truth in that, um, there would be, as um, systemically, uh, at the other end of it, um, the nature of the family life and the resources they had also bore a huge influence in it. And if you had parents who were very confident with ICT and they were in a position where perhaps they hadn't lost their jobs, uh, maybe didn't have to work from home and their child was a struggling child, they those kids would have done well um, equally. Um, the top end kids... If, if they had a dysfunctional home, they would have struggled. But look, by and large, um, what I noticed was that uh, the kids, 
You, you notice the impact that uh, resources had, the families that had more access to technology, Peter, uh, and resources that way, and perhaps education, were better placed to support their kids than the ones who perhaps didn't even have a computer at home and schools were struggling to get them uh, and or those families that uh, had other issues. Uh, if, you, if you had a family that wasn't working too well and you're stuck in the house for six months, you can imagine it wouldn't have been the best place for kids to, to learn. What, what I did notice, Peter, was that the debate began with a great concern about educational slippage. By the end of it, that was still important, but there was a far greater concern on mental health and well-being of people, kids, teachers, uh, parents, the isolation factor. We're, we're social beings, and we were finding that by the time the kids got back, um, there was more concern on people's well-being uh, than there was perhaps at the beginning in relation to my kid might slip a bit in uh, in their learning. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, I, I heard some absolute horror stories from people about how kids were really struggling through it, and that was um, yeah, it was one of the most difficult things for me is hearing those stories. Mm, yes, they, uh, about they, young people. Yeah. Now you've got a couple of areas you want to talk about. Now one of them is I've got a piece here from you: the danger of following. The experts. Now, I will preface this by saying um, I'm in the field of education and uh, I read that with interest and I thought, oh, we train people at the end of the day to develop expertise in areas which will be contributing to society. So I, I thought, well, right, I'll be very interested to see what Peter adds to his article. So go for it. Well, uh, I wrote that a couple of months ago and I think it's really important because this year it's been a trend that's been happening over a long period of time, but this year, like no other, we've seen the advice of experts weaponised or utilised by politicians to justify their policy uh, ends and their political ends, and it's something that people have to be aware of because, um, you know, public policy becomes more complicated and the government becomes more involved in our lives, which is what has been occurring for a number of decades now. Uh, it's more important than ever for people to wake up about how expert advice is being utilised, and as you mentioned, Henry, um, you know, you train people to be experts and things like that, and it, this is in no way a criticism of experts per se. It's how their advice is used by politicians. Uh, we need experts to give us, you know, informed uh, views about public policy issues, and that's really helpful, but at the end of the day, decisions have to be made by politicians and, and ultimately the people that elect them. And I think that it would be helpful if people realise a number of things about um, expert advice that they perhaps don't realise when, when politicians say, oh, we're doing this because we're following advice of the expert. Yeah, well, um, politicians, you know, they've got a very responsible job and I do... I don't think it's a party political issue when we say that at times we listen to them with scepticism across the board. Of course, um, COVID-19 has been a very interesting one and it's been one that's been very controversial and we've had everything from um, countries taking the view of, uh, I guess, a herd immunity approach to countries such as New Zealand, ourselves, um, I think there's a few others, Thailand, Korea, that have taken a, a much uh, a much stronger lockdown restriction point of view, waiting for a vaccine. Um, I guess in asking in, in, in asking you to comment, the countries that seem to have been stricter 
appear to have less deaths and not a second or third wave as what we're seeing in America, uh, Sweden, much of Europe, UK. Um, so, and that's been a really, really big talking point and it's come down at the end of the day to which expert advice you listen to. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, you've, you've mentioned there a range of approaches to this, and that's the first sort of point that, you know, I'd make about expert advice is that people say, oh, I'm doing, I'm just following the advice of the experts here. But clearly, as we can see by the multiplicity of approaches taken to this thing around the world, is that there's a range of, um, there's a range of approaches that experts have, have put forward. So when a politician says, oh, I'm following the advice of the experts, people have to realise that experts argue with each other. They spend their lives arguing with each other. We talked off air about the fact and I'm finally completing my, uh, you know, fingers crossed, economics PhD. And I, <laughs> yes. That's in development economics. And in development economics, people argue with each other all the time. Like, I'm not an expert, but my supervisors would probably be regarded as experts, and they argue with people all the time. So when a politician says, I'm following the advice of experts, you have to be aware of the fact that there are different experts saying different things, and just because they're following the advice of one expert doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing to do. Um, secondly, I'd say, uh, as we've seen in Victoria, at times politicians just bend the truth. You know, they just say, I'm following the advice of experts. And then um, it turns out a few months later, actually, there was no advice from experts. The decision was just made. Because it was made, we saw that with regard, I think, to the curfew. That was the one that eventually uh, the chief health officer said, well, no, that was nothing to do with me. And then the police uh, commissioners said, well, actually, that was nothing to do with me, and it turns out it was just made up, oh, not made up, but just introduced at, at the behest of uh, politicians. Uh, the other one, of course, is the most controversial one of all, which was hotel quarantine. We heard for months and months and months that every single piece of every 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 policy with regards to COVID was the result of uh, experts and, and science and doctors, uh, except for that one, the most important decision of all, which seems to have been a decision made by no one and was actually just a creeping assumption so, um, you know, politicians, uh, look, it'll come as no surprise to anyone that politicians often bend the truth and, and you know, using the cover of expert advice uh, is a great way to do that. Um, a, a further point about this is that experts are, are frequently wrong. Um, that's not because experts are stupid or they're lying or anything like that. It's just because these are unbelievably complicated public policy issues and it's hard for anyone to get them right, and and there's views that experts have had that have been top of the line expert advice uh, in the past, which we would look back now and think, gee, wasn't that stupid? A really good example, which I had in this article, Henry, was um, the American Psychiatric Association up until the 1970s regarded being gay as a mental disorder. Now we look at that now and say, isn't that appalling? Which it is. Uh, but in the 70s, that was the view, or up until the 70s, that was the view of just about the peak mental health organisation in the whole world. Uh, it's stand, and you know, there's countless other examples um, that you could point to. So, I, I, I guess to the layperson, it begs a simple question then, Peter, and that is, point taken, yes, you're, you're quite right, as, as we develop that is a political area, experts disagree in almost every field, um, but it, and educated ones do, yep. But at the end of the day, when we do make a decision, you get to the pointy end of wherever, whatever. Um, so if you can't trust the experts, the wide array of them, who and a decision has to be made, who do you? Who does the layperson turn to? 
Well, yeah, I mean, it is it is, it is a difficult. That is a good question, Henry. I think that um, I think. Look, I don't think we shouldn't use the advice of experts at all. I'm just saying that we should be wary of politicians who their only justification for things is I'm just following the advice of experts. Like they're almost using expert advice as a cover. Um, the, the, a lot of the things with regards to COVID, for example, or climate change or the economy are really difficult moral trade-offs. And the people that we have to trust with regards to those moral trade-offs are us. Basically, we live in a democracy and, and we elect politicians to make um, to make difficult moral trade-offs. And, and, and COVID presented some excruciating moral trade-offs for politicians to make. Um, and, and ultimately, it comes down to us because if a politician makes a decision that we don't like with regards to some of the deep... Uh, moral questions that the world throws up at us, then that's our, you know, we have to elect someone else to make those decisions. Um, well, so experts can inform those decisions and they can give us really valuable information, but at the end of the day, it comes down it comes down to us. It comes down to us at the ballot box at the end of a long day, and yeah, COVID's been one of those challenging ones. I guess, I guess the bigger issue on that for me has been, Peter, I do have some concerns with what and we've seen this for several years now, and I think we've seen it most colourfully in the UK and perhaps America and Brazil, is the the rise of populism in terms of... and the emotional waves it creates in terms of decision-making. Um, I mean, well, I'm not an American. I don't live in America. I don't presume to tell the Americans how to do anything. But I must say um, they've just had a president who certainly challenged all the orthodoxies that you're talking about and yet at the end of an election um, we've got the situation where uh, he has no respect for the very process which elected him in the first place and many people are influenced by him and I I wonder that if you take away democracy, um, what do you replace it with? Yeah, exactly right. I mean, um, you know, any political leader that's effectively no political leader is perfect and no government is perfect. And um, yeah, as I say, you know, we, we have to take responsibility for the decisions people make. Um, you know, people have sort of made the claim that expert advice has been um, derided in certain places of the world and, and the, and um, you know, the expert view has been kind of, um, or education has been discredited and things like that. I, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I certainly buy into that view. I'm kind of of the view that as a society, less so in Australia, but certainly in the United States and the UK, society has become more polarised, but the gap between or the shared values between, um, I guess, people who don't go to university and people who do go to university uh, has widened the worldview of people who go to university has become further estranged from the, the views of people that, that do go to university. So a natural suspicion has arisen um, about experts who are obviously, by definition, educated at university. And I, so I sort of think that the, you know, expert advice has become, I guess, a weapon in a broader culture war um, that you've sort of been referring to a little bit there. But, um, yeah, look, overall, sort of my view is that expert advice is important. We need it. But we have to be awake to the fact that it's been weaponised and utilised by politicians. And at the end of the day, an expert can tell you that policy A will do this and policy B will do that. But it's up to us to decide what we as a society think is the best way forward. Because usually 
um, there are trade-offs heading in all sorts of different directions. Which at the end of the day gives me heart that we actually do have democracy in our type of uh, our type of societies and uh, as long as we've got the ballot box, there's always hope. Now, another topic you wanted to talk about was the battle between the government and the ABC at the moment. That tends to rage quite a bit, particularly when we have conservative governments... Uh, who fund the ABC from our money and we have issues at stake. So presumably, and that's been going on for a while now, presumably uh, this uh, you want to comment on all of this? Yeah, well, it's an interesting one and it's a thing that sort of uh, comes up all the time for someone like me. The ABC clearly is an organisation that uh, is, is a left-wing organisation, a media organisation, and that's fine. There's not, nothing wrong with a media organisation um, swinging in a certain direction. In fact, every media organisation does, let's be honest. Hey, but fact is, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And the, the problem with the ABC is that we're all forced to pay for it, and that's what really gets the goat of people like myself. I wouldn't describe myself as conservative or more of just a sunny classical liberal, but um, needless to say, the ABC is not a fan of my views. The IPA did a poll earlier this year, or he commissioned a poll, um, earlier this year, where only 32% of Australians, so I obviously work the RPA, as Henry mentioned, um, 32% of Australians think the ABC reflects the views of ordinary Australians. Um, and that's probably about right. It sort of it sort of reflects the view of about a third of Australians, and that's fair enough. But all of Australians are forced to pay for it, and it's just completely unjust and unfair that two-thirds of Australia have to pay for this organisation that thinks they're completely wrong and, and, and has spend their hard-earned on this, this very powerful and persuasive organisation to tell them how wrong they are. Um, so that, to me, is the reason why I think the ABC should be privatised. And I think the issues that are occurring at the moment um, are, I guess, representative of the fact that it's really difficult for the ABC to fulfil its objective of being completely balanced and unbiased. I mean, so what happened, obviously, for those that aren't aware, is that the ABC did a Four Corners report into coalition MPs about their private lives. They say that's in the public interest. Um, the coalition says it's not in the public interest. I don't know. It's a really complicated issue. Maybe you know, I personally don't care about the private lives of politicians up to a point. Um, I think that you can be an effective political leader without um, without being an angel in your private life. Uh, I'm not saying that's what's happened here, but that, that's just what my view is in general. Other people say, no, you know, your private life is a proxy for how you behave in public and they think it's really important. Anyway, the point is it's really difficult to tell and it's actually impossible for the ABC to be completely objective um and so and whether something's in the public interest and whether the abc is being objective is basically an impossible task it's further exacerbated by the fact that they have to um they have to cater to their audience which as we sort of just talked about is completely left-wing so if they did in fact start to be more balanced and include conservative viewpoints they'd actually lose some of their market share which would then they'd then be criticized for that so it's really difficult for them to do that uh, and my final point about this is that I actually think privatisation would be a good thing for the ABC. So, you know, like a lot of people that I love most in the world watch the ABC all the time. I don't want the, the ABC to necessarily fall into the ocean. I just think that there should be ads in there or, and or a subscription type set up, just like every other media organisation, uh, and it should stand on its own two feet. And I think that would actually be a good thing for the ABC because it would mean that they wouldn't have to try and, you know, make these attempts to be objective when they don't really want to be and they don't... Um, really get to say what they want to say. Um, and I actually think that privatisation is pretty much is good for any uh, industry, including 
the media industry and, and it would actually benefit the ABC in the long run. Mm, yeah, no, that's uh, that's uh, that's an interesting and uh, widely held view among people. Um, I guess what people you on... that, Sorry? What's uh, your view on the ABC? Uh, look, I my view, I look look, I don't disagree with, with, with what you say about media organizations uh, in general. Yes, they you, you can identify them here, there and wherever. I guess my view on the ABC is probably well, I tend to have a greater inclination to their viewpoints. So from a personal point of view, um, I, I'm drawn more to them than I am to News Corp, for example, even though I do check into News Corp's point of view. But I think that's a human, a human trait. You tend to go to where you find most comfort with your worldview. In terms of whether they should be privatised or in terms of whether because they are a niche in the community, I'm, I probably diverge from you there, Pete. Um, I, my worry with privatisation is that the pointy end of privatisation, you tend to get duopolies and monopolies because privatisation is about competition uh, and survival of the fittest and strongest. So you do have less diversity over a long period of time simply by definition of that model now that that that's a philosophical thing and and i'm not saying we shouldn't have competition um and we do have one organization which dominates more than any other uh, our, our our media and that's news corp now i'm not making a value judgment about news corp but there's plenty of that out there uh in terms of they only um meet to a third of australians well it's a good point you make. In, in answer to it, I'd say when we pay our taxes, for example, um, I could have go to the local swimming pool. Now, if I've got money, um, I might have my own pool. Now, um, because I have my own swimming pool, I could then say, well, I've provided my own swimming pool. Why should I pay for those people who want to go to a public pool? Because... I'm not using a public pool, that which underlies the concept of taxation. It's not about you put your money in and on everything you get an equal amount of money back for you. Um, it's about you pool it in the overall common interest for, for the masses and, and, and the smaller groups because the smaller voices and the disadvantaged, etc. in any sector... Um, they they can be drowned out or ignored. I know that in schools, we we have to put a lot of time in public schools to make sure that our brightest and best and most well resourced kids have the same, but no more or less than the kids who you know they live off the smell of an oily rag at home. So look, it's a complicated one. Uh, since you asked me, um, you've you've actually interviewed me on your segment, and I guess I can thank you for that, Peter. Although I wasn't actually expecting that. That's all right. Look, it's always good to have a conversation rather than just a one-way thing. Yeah, I, I would say you know compared to. In terms of that, so in terms of giving disadvantaged people a voice, I really question the idea that the ABC represents disadvantaged people in our community. The ABC is the voice of the elite, really. You know, it's the voice of the university educated people that live in the inner city. You know, I don't like to give labels to things, but it, I would, you know, it, it, clearly more people that are, you know, professionals and well off 
uh, with the watching ABC than, than people who are not in that sector of society. And I'd say that we actually have more media diversity than ever. There's a trope going around that News Corp is uh, dominant when at the moment you can watch any news service from around the world from a computer that lives in your pocket. You can access a multitude of views. In fact, there's so many views it's difficult to, to take in. So I sort of, because that, that, those ideas that you brought up about um, News Corp is something that gets um, gets brought up a lot. Anyway, that, that would just be my view of that. No, no, look, just one correction. I wouldn't say I was saying that the listeners to the ABC or the viewers are disadvantaged. It was in the context of um, a smaller percentage of people um, which the ABC caters to a, f- a smaller percentage of the population. So it wasn't about them being disadvantaged. No, I take your point about that. Um, no, look, um, love chatting about the media. Look, one of the things, we're on the media now, Pete, and one of the things that I think in our type of country, which is a great thing, and you participate, and I'm so pleased to be in it, is that in, 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 in our democracies, we can engage in this, Peter, and at the end of the day, <laughs> we can still be mates and we can still still um, feel safe. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, you can't, you can't... I mean, one of the things about this year, which have, which I found, to be honest, more terrifying than COVID, was the extent to which polarisation in the United States has taken hold. I mean, the idea that you live in a country where you hate people that have a different political from, view from you, I couldn't yeah. reject more wholeheartedly. You know, I mean, some of the people, I love, as I mentioned, love most in the world, have completely yeah. different political views from me, and I would hate to live in a place that where that's occurring and that is occurring in the United States. You can see the, you know, the violence on the streets and the, and, and certain segments of society have just completely disengaged from national public discourse. I mean, they can't even, it's not even a difference in interpretation over there. It's different. They've got different versions of facts for each tribe and it's a real problem. And, and it's a problem for everyone because, you know, if America is in trouble that that spells trouble for everyone else so we well, really need them to yeah, they're, well they're the they're the most the biggest and most powerful of the democracies in western society on that level i'm glad we live here and we can have our conversations but as always thank you for your contribution and uh, support of the program and it's always a pleasure to engage in some good lively discussion with you Thank you very much, Henry, and Merry Christmas to you and all your listeners, and most importantly, hopefully, a happy and better New Year. And likewise to you. That was Peter Gregory, Research Fellow at the Institute of Public Affairs. Listeners, we'll take a short break. Don't go away. (laughs) 